Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's a big honour to have John McDonnell on, though I'm slightly concerned, John, I've got slight nervousness because you did an interview with Navarra and within hours their entire channel got taken off. I'm not getting the rap for that one, okay? Actually, I was, I spoke to Navarra, I tweeted out in their support and I was going to raise it in Parliament, um, but before I had the chance to do that, it got put back up again. All I'm saying is correlation. The facts speak for themselves. Whatever happens to you over the next 48 hours, I'm not getting the blame for it, all right? Well, we'll let the court of public opinion decide that. Before I start by asking about the budget, let's just zoom in on John's background because, let's have a look. Should we zoom in on John? I'll do it, one second. The trombone, there it is. Lovely little trombone. Is that so whenever we talk about anything to do with British politics, you're going to wah, 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 because that would be appropriate. Actually, we might well do that in future. Though, what, I, what I've done is, I, what's happened is, is that I usually operate from my study, and I have been throughout COVID. But at the moment, it's so piled up with files, books, and all the rest, I've moved into the next room, which is my dining room, where I usually, during COVID, I've been using it for learning the trombone. That's been, my COVID project was to learn the trombone, because it's been an ambition for quite a while. I'm not dexterous enough to do a trumpet or anything like that. So I thought what I'll do is I'll try, and I do once a week, I have a half an hour, three quarters an hour lesson on the trombone with a young man online that he takes me through, teaching me to read music, which is wonderful. I just love it. And then we do a practice on the trombone. I get set homework, which I copy. I try and do each day a little bit. The neighbors are not bad. They haven't, they've stopped petitioning at the moment. So that's okay. Uh, and the family usually go out for an hour when, when I do it. I am, I mean, I really enjoy, well, I'm not much cop, obviously, but I'm, I really enjoy it. It's well, been a great that? exercise during COVID, you know. Like I've it, always yeah. loved brass bands. I've always loved them. And I, and I've, um, I, interesting, <laughs> I went to, I went to see a brass band in Norwich a short while ago. We were up on holiday and there was all these ba- bands from across Norfolk come along as well and there was all these sort of 10 year olds who are miles in advance of anything I can do so impressive really anyway that's what I've been doing during COVID it's a great way to to spend a pandemic but maybe take it to PMQs and see maybe just (laughs) every time Boris Johnson speaks there it is let's start the budget so we've had the budget uh Rishi Sunak's budget and according to for example Philip Collins a former Times columnist influential man, wrote Keir Starmer's conference speech. He said it was a Labour budget. And Robert Peston, who is ITV's uh, political um, journalist there, says that Boris Johnson is an arch-Keynesian. So here it is, a a Labour Labour budget um, unveiled by a Conservative government. Is it? It's not. But it's important we understand the politics of 
of this budget because the Institute of Fiscal Studies, I, I watched online their analysis of the budget. Paul Johnson, the uh, director of the IFS, him and his team the next day after the budget always do analysis of it. And he was describing it as one of the significant moments. He put it on a par with significant change, game-changing budgets like uh, Norman Lamont's way back in the 80s, 90s, and then Gordon Brown's, George Osborne's, that sort of thing. And I actually do think it's, it's, it's a, it is a game-changing budget, but not in the way that people are treating it at the moment. And my argument is this, that actually, Paul Johnson said this budget doesn't relate to COVID. It's spending on health, education, traditional uh, budgets, as budgets do, looking at public services overall and benefits, universal credit, etc. And he said it doesn't relate to COVID. I actually think it does relate to COVID. I, I think, and I've been saying this for a little while, I think there has been a paradigm shift, not that the Tories want it or will want to stay with it, but I think there's been a paradigm shift amongst our whole community as a result of the experience of COVID. And we've discussed this before. I think people have come out of, come out of the first, this first huge wave of COVID. I don't think by any means we're at the pandemic at all at the moment, but this first wave or so, I think they've come out of it with quite a significant change in what some people would call the public mood. I think it's quite a significant paradigm shift about their thinking. Um, and it's a, it's all been about the experience of COVID, the importance of our public services, the, the respect that we have for the people that deliver those public services the way in which they're so essential to our society, that concept, you know, we care about each other, we but we need each other working together, and the role of the state. And I think there's been a paradigm shift from the neoliberal dominance, which has been all about small state, cut taxes, privatisation, cut the pay of public servants. I think there's been a paradigm shift away from that because so many ex people have experienced through the pandemic the role of the state, the significance and importance and indeed a growing affection for those public services, the NHS in particular. And they've also realised just how close, um, how close we were to the, on the edge of collapse of a number of those public services, the NHS, but social care in particular as well, as a result of years of austerity. So coming through the pandemic as best we can at the moment, a lot of people have come to the view, first of all, after 11 years of austerity, never again. That's it. Complete opposition to austerity now. And no Tory Chancellor can get away with imposing the scale of austerity that they've done in the last 11 years, although they'll try to do it by stealth as much as possible. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think there's a, the paradigm shift has been around the role of the state as well. So what's happened? I know I've been listening to lots of the commentators and when they interview Labour spokespeople, they say, hey, the Tories have parked their tanks on your lawn, haven't they? I don't like the military illusions, but if you're going to have a military illusion around this, 
actually what's happened is overwhelmingly the mass of the people's demands have overwhelmed the trenches of the Tories. And what no Tory government could get away with another period of austerity on the scale that we've seen. No Tory government can argue anymore about the, the small state and get away with arguing. But people realise you need the NHS, you need social care, you need your local councils, you need those paramedics. And yes, you need those policing services as well, the role that they've played within our society. So I think there's been a huge para political paradigm shift in our community now. Sunak has had to, and John, John, Sunak and Johnson have had got to re had to recognise that. And I also think Tory polling, but also Sunak's own public relations team's polling, because they'll be investing a hell of a lot of money on this, will be feeding back to them that actually they've been forced into certain changes. And that's why this budget came the way it did. But let's not let's not kid ourselves. Um, what they've done is done, they've tried to do the minimum possible by way of change so that they can survive. And then what they'll seek to do, and it was betrayed really in the last section of Sunak's budget speech, what they'll try to do is return as soon as they possibly can to traditional Thatcherite, cut the taxes, reduce the role of the state. And also it was interesting because he included in the fiscal rules another attack on welfare benefits as well. So I think we need to, we need to look at it in that context. And I actually, I think it, it holds out huge opportunity, political opportunity for the Labour Party. Um, first of all, it confirms what we've been saying for, for years now, that austerity was a political choice, not an economic necessity. That's the first thing. The second thing, it opens up a, it's quite a significant divide amongst the Conservative Parliamentary Party in particular. And you'll see that there's the Thatcherites who what really are giving Sunak, interestingly enough, for the first time, giving him a hard time about all this tax and spend policies in this budget. And the, the large minority within the parliamentary party in the amongst the Tories are those people are coming back from their constituencies and ringing in their ears is their constituents' concerns about making sure they have a decent NHS, making sure there's investment in education, making sure that actually they have decent pay rise coming at them in the next year, but also making sure that actually, well, Universal Credit, for example, where he's changed the taper but left two-thirds of the people out of any benefit, making sure those changes should apply to everyone. So I think there's a real divide there that Labour can, well, I think can really take, and take apart, really. The third thing as well, and this I think it's almost inevitable, the policies that he's put forward are so half-hearted they won't satisfy the real needs of people. But then in addition to that, in some areas, they're bound to, to fail in comparison with the hyperbole from Johnson. And that includes all these issues around levelling up. The best example of, of where it's never going to satisfy people isn't just the NHS. On education, they were cheering when Sunak announced his education investment until they realised... <laughs> The big claim of the big achievement is that all it does, the investment he's put forward, all it does is return us to the levels of 
expenditure on education in 2010, so it takes us back 11 years. And even then, the figures have been taken apart since then. And it's now been demonstrated. It doesn't even do that. So again, I, my own view now is that actually politically, this budget provides a real opportunity for the Labour Party now. So taking them apart, recognising the divisions amongst the Tories, recognising that actually the budget in comparison with the needs and in comparison with what the Tories have done over the last 11 years is relatively trivial. Um, but in to exploit the to exploit this opportunity, the issue for a Labour front bench now is you can go on the media, you can attack the Tories, you can take them apart on this so easily, issue by issue, whether it's pay or public services investment or whether it's tackling poverty. You can take them apart on that, but the question is then asked, well, what would you do? And the problem for Labour spokespeople at the moment is that they're going on air and they can't answer that question. And it then completely deflates the opportunity that they've got in front of them now. So the issue for us is let's just recognise what this budget is. It's been forced upon the Tories. It goes nowhere near tackling the issues after 11 years of austerity that people are facing. It, in many ways, continues to endanger people because the tax rises, low pay, the failure to address any real pay rise, people will be in significantly hardship, experience significant hardship in this coming period. Mm -hmm. But Labour has got to, got to offer the alternative. It cannot just keep on saying, wait to the manifesto, that people aren't, aren't going to accept that. But also, in addition, you can't just throw up the occasional micro policy, which people won't see that as sufficient. I, so I, my own view... The budget itself is nowhere near a Labour budget, nowhere near what we would have been doing if we were in power. But in addition to that, I think it does display such a huge shift, paradigm shift politically in our wider community. Mm -hmm. That's where Labour could really come in and build upon that with a radical programme, you know? I mean, one of the things I was interested in in terms of, I suppose with all this talk of the Tories having abandoned austerity and actually now expanding the state in, in a way, I suppose that maybe German Christian Democrats or French Gaullists and other European centre-right projects would have been comfortable with is actually, there's this misunderstanding that a left-wing approach to the economy is simply statism as in how big yeah. is the state when actually it's about whose interests, whose class interests, I suppose that the state serves and, Test and Trace is quite a striking example of that because obviously you could look at that as a huge public investment, but in practice, obviously it was disastrous on its own terms and it ended up subsidising private contractors, being paid more than £6,000 a day, Serco, GFRS, and so on. So what do you think? Do you think that's that's what people are misunderstanding, I suppose, about the new, the Johnsonian approach to the economy? It's, it's, it's not about so much you know embracing left of center economics it's about expanding the role of the state in the service of certain private interests what johnson's up to and it's pretty obvious isn't it when they talk about when they try and rebut this argument around the state well the state for them is exactly as you say it is basically the collection of taxes and other and, and charges and then redistributing in that not not in the way of delivery of services but in contract 
backs to the private sector and their mates. That that was it. If you remember, um, the, one of the Thatcherite proposals for local government is that the council meets once a year, agrees the um, council precept or the council tax level, and then it awards the uh, the contracts, and they all then councillors can then go away for another year. And that's exactly their concept of what what the state is. And uh, do you know the best example was last week, wasn't it? Really, the the kerfuffle that was in Parliament in the House of Lords um, about the uh, sewage being poured into our rivers by the private companies that now control and own our water supply. That was a classic example of what what. What really has happened within our society itself, whereby something that's been owned by us all, it's a natural resource, we owned it under under the state, and as a result of privatisation, it's now in private hands, they're ripping us off, they're making a fortune, they're using it for tax avoidance scams, and then they're polluting our waters as, as a result of that. So what would we do? We'd say, well, the most important thing is to bring it back into public ownership, but we've got to say it isn't the form of state ownership that it was in the past. What we need is a form of state that takes power and resources and then distributes them as rapidly as possible to who? To the people who actually seek to use those public services, to those who provide them. And in that way, you combine the expertise of the, the deliverers of the service with the expertise of those who receive that service now under democratic control like that in fact it's a form of it's a form of community control which most people wouldn't even recognize as the state and the way that it's been depicted in the past so i think it's interesting the budget itself the tory backbenchers were balking at the high levels of taxation they were balking at this attack on their theories of small state but most people realize now, particularly after the COVID pandemic, that actually you need an agency under democratic control, which can bring us together so that we can work together as a community. And that is in the form at the moment of the national state, regional and local. And people have recognized just how much they're dependent upon that particularly local delivery of services. And they have much more interest in the, those services now, particularly the caring and the health, the health services, of course. But I think it's gone wider than that. And now that we're facing with the existential crisis of climate change, people want to know how they can participate in, in tackling climate change at that local community level and what agency they need to do that. And it's that combination of community as well as what they then elect in terms of the local state. So uh, there's a, a much more shared understanding now of how we can affect change within our society and how we can rise to the challenges that, that we need. And what this budget was all about was that new recognition in the wider society being forced upon an extremely right-wing Tory administration against some of the wishes of its own, its own representatives in Parliament. I think it's an extremely ironic situation that the Tories have got themselves into now. Key thing for me now is how how Labour really recognises that at the leadership level and drives home now the political debate. There's such an opportunity here for Labour. They've got to grasp. Before I ask you about Labour, the climate emergency, obviously we've got 
COP26, and we do have an existential threat facing human civilization, so it's quite important. Um, and obviously in the budget, we saw, for example, a cut in tax on internal yeah. flights rather yeah. than, I don't know, trying to have a public transport system in this country, which is fit for the 21st century and affordable. I mean, where, where, where are we at, do you think, with the climate emergency in, in terms of the budget? Well, the flight example, the domestic flight example, demonstrated just how to, out of touch they were, not just with the issue of climate change, but also with public opinion. I think most people thought it was ludicrous that here they are encouraging, um, again, increased dependency and the usage of a fossil fuel-based sector. So again, I, I just de- it demonstrated to me uh, how out of kilter they were and how completely out of touch. And you'll find that in, the, in this coming period, you'll find, particularly in the rollout of this budget, just how distant they are, I think, issue by issue from the real world. The other example is on pay, you know, how far they are from the reality of what's happening on pay within our society. You know, the, the, the big announcement prior to the budget was the lifting of the public sector pay freeze. But, but then within literally within an hour of that announcement, a government minister is asked, well, does that mean that pay rises will be protected, will protect people against inflation? And he couldn't confirm that. So the whole thing, their big announcement around pay was completely deflated as soon as it came up against a real world demand. And I think that's what we'll find on issue after issue from this budget, but particularly on climate change. Everyone recognises that if we're going to, if we're going to ha- somehow protect the planet for the our children and grandchildren, we know the scale of it. We have to mobilise the whole economy, the whole community to enable us to do that. And what we've seen from the government is lip service being paid. And I'm sure what will happen with Johnson and, and COP26, I'm sure he'll come out with some negotiated statement of some sort. And it'll be like Neville Chamberlain. He'll be waving a piece of paper, peace in our time, all achieved, etc. But you know behind that, there's, there's nowhere near the commitment to the intensity of the change that, w- that we need. And again, that does provide the Labour Party with a real opportunity, working with other progressive groups as well, provide the Labour Party with an opportunity to show leadership in this matter. And it, one example of that, which I found interesting, you know, was when Ed Miliband was interviewed on Newsnight about climate change issues. And he was very clear on what was needed about the scale of investment, but he was also clear about uh, the role of the state and public ownership in doing that, particularly with regard to energy, water, environment, etc. And then within, what, 24 hours, he gets slapped down by the Labour leadership, um, basically moving, moving away from him and even briefing against him. And I just thought, well, that shows really that I don't think they've fully understood the importance now of this issue and demonstrating um, just how much, how Labour has a programme that's radical of, of a scale to be able to deal with it. So I'm hoping maybe, maybe now this next couple of weeks, we'll push the Labour leadership into a position where they're much more, much clearer. Rachel Reeves' speech to Labour Party conference about the scale of investment, I think was, was very good. It did set out 
at least some parameters of the scale of investment. I actually think we've moved on since then. I think the figures need to be significantly revised upwards. But you need to, alongside that investment, you've got to demonstrate just how much you're going to control where that goes and how that is democratically controlled at the local, regional and national level. And that must involve levels of public ownership when we've had a lot of our and a lot of our climate problems has been as a result of decisions made in well, private sector boardrooms against the interests of the community overall and whether that's about polluting our rivers or whether it's about the failure to insulate people's homes or whether it's about the failure of actually ensuring that our energy supply system is no longer dependent on fossil fuels all of that has been held back by private ownership so Labour, we mentioned Labour. So, and some people go, "Oh God, you can criticise Labour." Oh, you never hold the amount of videos and columns that I write about the Conservatives. A bit tedious, but some people don't like the Labour leadership being criticised. Not a cult. Um, the reason I bring it up is uh, they are obviously the opposition, and given the, the catastrophe unleashed by this government, the number of people who died during the pandemic, one of the worst in the Western world. Um, the terrible economic and social dislocation over a decade of austerity, the longest squeeze in living standards for working people since the Napoleonic age, the cuts suffered by disabled people, by low-paid workers, including those still after the budget, who will be driven further into poverty after being clapped on doorsteps and windows by, by, by Conservative ministers. And yet, the Labour Party is not offering a clear, compelling vision. The polling shows that, A, most people don't know what the Labour Party stands for anymore by an overwhelming margin, and B, that Keir Starmer's ratings are terrible, even though he has had the easiest ride from the media and his own MPs of any leader since Blair. So I suppose a lot of people would go, well, it's all well and good to just say how terrible the Conservative budget is, but Labour is not offering any compelling, coherent or inspiring vision um, and has left the people of this country completely confused and bewildered about what they even represent. I think there's a real issue. We've got to be honest about it. Um, in the polls. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What's been happening has been a sort of corrugated effect. We've bounced along the bottom um, we the Tory lead narrows um, when there's something when there's a screw up by Johnson when something goes wrong when there's been an exposure in the media of yet another one of the government's failures and we narrow that lead but the we narrow it not on the basis of 
an increase in Labour's popularity. We we narrow it on the basis of the Tories losing some support and that support largely going to the don't knows, the non almost the non voters. In addition to that, you know, we have to be honest that Keir's poll ratings, personal poll ratings, have, have collapsed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a consistent trend in the polls at the moment. So my my view is is, and I keep repeating it time and time again, is we could be into a general election by I think spring twenty twenty three. In fact, interesting, the gossip amongst Tory MPs, interesting, um, is that they want to go in twenty two, and the argument for that is that they think. There could be, if the longer they stay on at the moment, there could be quite a significant dip in Johnson's own popularity as, for example, like this budget, the promises that they hold out are seen to be, um, well, they fail to deliver on their promises and they feel they seem to be absolute shams. People will feel conned. And especially if, particularly around issues around pay and income, that um, people's pay remain relatively frozen and if not going backwards as a result of increases in energy prices, inflation, all of those issues. And that's exactly what uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies, Resolution Foundation, New Economics Foundation, all are predicting over the next 18 months to two years. So there's a, amongst the tourists, some of them want to go earlier than 2023 but I think it's most probably is spring 2023. So the argument I've been putting across, not the argument, they were, they, what I've been issuing or raising, the warning I've been raising with anyone who will listen to me anywhere near Labour's front bench, is if you want to learn the lesson of December 19, 2019, um, in that general election, yes, it was a Brexit election, but actually during that election, we try to shift it away from Brexit as much as we can. And I was throwing policy out after policy out during the election campaign, partly because in a normal cycle, those policies would have been developed over the next two years. The election occurred two years early, but we were desperate. And what happened to those policies that they were all individually popular. But um, when you throw out policies like that, if you hadn't prepared the ground and you haven't had time to, people just don't think they're credible. So what I've been saying to them is if there is an election in 2023, spring, that gives you about, well, you've got 18 months. Uh, 12 months of that should be about setting out your views about what sort of society you want to create, the principles of that. Then looking at at least now the basics of the program that will achieve it, and you bed those policies in, you announce the policy, you rebut the criticisms that will come in from the Tories, and then you translate those policies into what it means for individuals, their families, individual communities, and then obviously the country overall. And you need time to do that. And if they don't start doing that soon, people will continue of the view, what does Labour stand for? And they'll continue of the view that there's a lack of leadership coming from the Labour Party to show us what sort of world they want to create and how they're going to do it. So I think uh, my fear is they're running out of time. What does that mean for the movement overall? Well, I think the movement overall, we need to be asserting this. You know, Labour Party conference, there was good debates around policy. And if you look at some of the decisions that were were made there around climate change, education, health service, 
they were a fantastic compilation of the uh, debates and ideas that people have got, really creative as well. And what we should be doing is saying to Labour leadership, that debate has taken place. You should now be campaigning on that platform because in that way, in that way, we stand a chance of winning the next election. If you don't, we'll go, we'll drift into the next election. And to be frank, one of the, the worst Tory governments that we've ever experienced that's caused what the deaths of people, not just through austerity, but through the COVID crisis as well, that brought our public services to its knees and has inflicted real poverty on people as a result of low wages, insecure work and cuts in our welfare benefits system, they'll get away with it and we can't let them do that. So it's almost like a, a wake-up call to the Labour leadership, the Labour front bench, for goodness sake, let's let's get out there now. Let's start really setting out what we intend to do when we go into government. Otherwise, yeah, otherwise obliteration. I mean, well, that's the point. I suppose a lot of people might now go, well, look, Keir Starmer's not a man of his word because he made a series of commitments during the leadership election, which he's abandoned, radical domestic policies fused with party unity, electability, uh, professionalism and so on, none of which have been um, honoured. Um, and people around him just detest the left in many cases more than uh, the Conservatives. I know that as a fact. I've known many of those people for many, many years. I go back when I was a bag carrier where, for you, as it, as it so happens. Uh, and I knew some of those people when they were bag carriers for other MPs. Um, but also, uh, you know, in terms of the odds of coming up with an, a compelling alternative, it, it just, the cupboard is empty. And if you look at Theresa May, she originally, when she became leader, was seen as a serious-minded, not flashy or charismatic, but public-spirited. <laughs> which is how Keir Starmer was seen. And she disintegrated because she was seen as wooden and cynical. And in an election campaign, completely collapsed almost. And you can see how that would happen with Keir Starmer against Boris Johnson. He's already lost a seat Labour won in the 2019 election route. He nearly lost another. Yeah. Isn't it just time to go, this guy is never going to be prime minister, but he threatens not just to take the left down with him, but the Labour Party down with him. So what's the strategy then? Okay. Uh, first of all, you were never a bad carrier for me. Yeah. Oh, that's true, technically. So that is absolutely true. That's true. That's true. In fact, at times, I think it was the reverse. But there you are. <laughs> John. It's not like that. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you were never a bad carrier, quite the I reverse. was a bad carrier. But no, carry on. I never carried John's bags, just to make no, that absolutely no, clear. You never once carried your bags. You were part of, I thought, what was a brilliant team, to be honest. You and Andrew Fisher and Mary... Mary as well, Mary Partington as well. I thought there was a brilliant team with Andrew as, as well. So um, on all of that, I, the situation we're in is this. And, and it, as, we, as we go into winter now, um, what will happen, I think, is that whatever the Labour leadership does, the movement overall, and when I say the movement, I mean the Labour and trade union and progressive mo movement that we have in this country, I think, to be honest, whatever the Labour leadership does, that mo movement will be mobilised. Um, I think the crunch point will be around pay in particular. Um, if you look at a number of trade unions at the moment, there's disputes going on all over the country at the moment on different aspects of trade union demands. 
Um, you know, look at UCU. They've had picket lines out on a whole range of colleges. I've been on um, PCS, the Royal Park strike. Uh, you look at the various Unite disputes that are taking place. And what people have just basically they're coming to the conclusion they've had enough. They've had enough of low wages. They've had enough of insecure work. They've had enough of management bullying. And they're just beginning to mobilize now. And I think that you'll find in these coming months that the whole movement on a whole range of issues will start coming together with some substance and force, both in terms of industrial action that's taking, but also in a whole range of different campaigns, whether it's against tax avoiders, whether it's campaigning for issues around climate change, against some of those agencies and the private sector companies that are abusing our environment. I think that you'll see our movement in mobilizing now on quite a significant scale. Uh, and that's almost irrelevant what the Labour leadership does on that. I think it's going to happen. So then the Labour leadership then will have to decide really what role it's going to play. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't play a role that plays a significant leading role in, in the mobilisation of that movement, I think people will look on it as absolutely irrelevant. If by the time we get to January, February and then into the spring, and we're still behind in the polls like this, you know what the Parliamentary Labour Party is like. The, their main concern, understandably, is around um, political survival, life expectancy. And if there's a risk that more and more seats will be lost at the next general election because of the failure to mobilise, I think a number of people will be asking Keir to consider his position. That's the reality of it. I'm not making that prediction. I'm just telling you that's the reality if we get into those situations. Now, my again, my word to the all those on the front bench and the Labour leadership itself and those around Keir Starmer's, the leader's office or whatever, is recognise that reality. And the only way you can overcome that is actually getting on side with the rest of the movement, which is recognising these are the challenges the movement is going to be facing and this is the way it will be mobilising and you need to be part of that. But if you're seen as irrelevant, you'll be seen as irrelevant as a leadership as we run up to the next general election. That's that's the hard truth of, of it all. What the left does in all of this is do what we always do. We mobilise and we support those struggles and we do it in solidarity. And yes, if necessary, within the Labour Party itself, we challenge both in terms of policy, but also, if necessary, we'll challenge in terms of position. But what we won't do is anything reckless that divides the movement, quite the reverse. Well, all our work will be about trying to hold that movement together. And, you know, this sounds like strong criticism of the Labour leadership, but actually it's constructive criticism. We cannot go on the way we are and expect just to win an election by default. The Tories will do everything they possibly can to cling on to power. They'll have the resources to do that. They'll have the mainstream media uh, with them. Of course, they all always have. The only way we can actually gain power is if we mobilise on the basis of people motivated by that, that, well, I suppose that vision that we present, but also by the practical, pragmatic policy programmes that they recognise are so relevant to their lives. That's my advice to the Labour leadership at the moment. But I think that's one one way in which we can see the, the future unrolling in this coming 12 months.
Well, I mean, all I'd say is if, for example, the Parliamentary Labour Party did create a vacancy, uh, a lot of people would want you to stand in that circumstance. I'm just telling you, it's just a fact. Well, that's that's why I avoid that question altogether and say, let's concentrate on the issue for us now is not about personalities or anything like that. You know that. That's No, I know. But by definition, if there's a leadership election, then the issue becomes about candidates. Yeah, but that's when the left will will come together, as we have done in the past. And that's when we'll have that discussion and that and that debate. But if we try to get dragged into that by media and other elements, it's a diversion. The issue for me now is how do we mobilise the movement overall on all these different issues? But importantly, how do we convince people that all these issues are linked to the economic and political system that we have? And if you have to, if you tackle one, actually that will have a repercussions for other areas of struggle that we need to enter into as well. I think that's beginning to happen. It's it's happening already. The unions now are talking to each other in a way that they haven't done for quite a while because mm-hmm. they're all facing the attacks on pay. They're all facing their attacks on pensions. You know, UCU, the proposals are to cutting people's pensions by about 30%. Mm. No one's going to stand by and tolerate that. But alongside that, they then look at what's happening with PCS and civil service, exactly the same. Then you look at private sector organisations that are doing the fire and rehire still. You can see there's a common of concern that's emerging now, which enable us, therefore, to mobilise together. The good thing about it as well, I have to say, is where I've been on the picket lines recently, both online and physical picket lines, there's a new generation that's come forward. It's just unbelievable. And, it, and it's a generation that actually is politically aware. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about organised card raise or anything like that, but we're talking about people who are politically aware and incredibly creative about the actions that they can take. And they translate their individual struggle, whether it be industrial or whatever, into something much more about issues around grotesque levels of inequality, issues around climate change. So I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic now than I've been for quite a while. I'm quite confident I can see a movement emerging now that, could bring about quite transformative change. And it's almost like trying to wake the Labour Party leadership up to recognise that, that it's there and potentially is available to them as well. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a geriatric millennial, that's my age group now, by the way, I I am always inspired by those who are actually young as, as a 37-year-old that can no longer claim that mantle. <laughs> but that's how I was going to end. I was going to ask what gives you most hope right now, and I suppose you've kind of answered it. But is there, is there any other kind of hopeful note we can end this on in, in what are have been pretty bleak times over the last two, three years? I think, I think the issue above all else is making sure people are confident that we can bring about transformative change and it doesn't have to rely upon um, an, an immediate election. That will come. One will follow the other. One, the mobilisation of a movement around a whole range of different campaigns and struggles and disputes, etc., will enable us then to sort of lay the foundations for the political advance in an election. One can't come without without the other. So I'm optimistic we're sort of laying the foundations again for the next wave of advancement for well, for socialism, to be honest, that's what I'm looking for. So I'm quite confident about that. I have my concerns about the Labour Party um, leadership waking up to that. Of course I do. But I have absolute confidence that the movement is capable of overcoming those those sorts of issues and, and having a mechanism for dealing with that. So in all of that, the other the other thing that's given me confidence as well 
culturally now, actually, there's so much creativity going on culturally, whether it's in music, drama, dance, whatever, you name it, it's, it's happening. So people, in some ways, I regretted that when uh, Jeremy and I were in leadership positions in the Labour Party, although we had a fair amount of support and grime and stuff like that coming along, we didn't really have the sort of cultural range of support that I was expecting. And that sort of renaissance of, of cultural activity, it was there, but not on the scale I was expecting. I think it's beginning begin to build in that way. So that that quite, I find that quite inspiring now. So I keep bumping into people who are writing or who are performing or developing ideas around performance um, that I think will enable us to communicate much, so much more effectively than we have in the past. John, it's been a real pleasure as always. I feel more optimistic than when I started. These are, I'll take anything I can get, to be honest. But that was genuinely, uh, as ever, very comprehensive and we really, really appreciate, appreciate your time. Optimism comes from being able to learn the trombone as well. Let me say that. <laughs> Disappointed you didn't give us a rendition, but next time I might take, I might demand you do. Give me a few more months. All right, cheers, John. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.